So welcome back to The Bill Bennett Show, the podcast that takes a deeper look at the current administration, helping you understand and translate Trump. Coming up on this episode, we continue our fascinating conversation with Joel Farkas, director of the American Strategy Group. Today, we're going to continue our conversation about the American economy, how the elites are hurting it on purpose, question mark, and how Donald Trump is trying to fix it. We'll also jump into the proposed Trump tariffs. Is he starting a trade war? Or is that more Trump hysteria from the left? We'll also welcome Terry Pell, who will give us insight on a very important case being argued right now in the Supreme Court. This is about union dues, whether they should be compulsory. The way the court comes out on this could affect the future of education in this country as it affects the future of public trade unions. So let me talk about a few things. Uh, on Monday morning early, I did uh, Fox and Friends, and they asked me a bunch of things. They didn't ask me about what I was supposed to talk about, but that happens, I understand. Okay. Because the events intervene. Uh, I was supposed to talk about opioid epidemic and the president's very tough language, uh, for which, of course, he was scolded by liberals, in which he said, well, you know, look at some of these countries, and they have the death penalty for distributing drugs. And so liberals went nuts on that, as if he's proposing it for America. He was proposing the idea of being serious, deadly serious, about uh, drug use and talking about the traffickers. He made an excellent point. He said an individual murders a single person and we try him for murder and we sometimes put him in an electric chair or life imprisonment. But a drug dealer, major drug dealer, passes around parcels of drugs which may kill dozens or hundreds of people. Uh, and often it's a very short sentence, uh, if any at all, uh, because they plead down and sometimes they just, you know, get, get off the hook. It's certainly not draconian. Now, this flies in the face of uh, what liberals think. It also flies in the face of a lot of the prison reform movement that's going on. But the president's absolutely right, and here's why he's right. We have never been successful in an effort on the drug problem unless we get the drugs out of circulation. To get the drugs out of circulation, you need law enforcement. That way, the drugs are less plentiful and more expensive. When they're less plentiful and more expensive, fewer people use them to toxic levels, uh, and fewer people go to the emergency rooms. That's it. That's straightforward. That's an end of this equation you've got to look at. you got to look at all aspects here, education, treatment, everything, but you have to look at the law enforcement side. Because unless you get the drugs off the street... You will continue to have addicts. Well, give them the medicine, increase treatment, put more beds. Yeah, I'm all for helping people, but let's remember what the success rate is for drug treatment. It runs about 20%. Somebody enter, enters a therapy, a regimen for using drugs, has a 20% chance they'll stay drug-free once they get out. Uh, those aren't great odds. It's four to one against. Let's bear it in mind. So I support the president when he says, let's go harsh. Do we have to be Singapore? I don't think so. Uh, by the way, federal law does provide for serious traffickers to get up to life imprisonment. So it's there. Let's uh, let's exercise it. Let's do it. Uh, anyway, on Fox, I was asked about Trump and the media and how they're sort of picking at him and saying, well, he wants to be like President Xi of China and have lifetime terms. He, um, you know, he's egocentric. He's maybe mentally unfit. Maybe he can't govern. Uh, and what I thought about that, and I, I think this is absolutely backwards. The, the media cannot understand him. They don't get him. He's a supernova, and they're trying to put him in a little box, and it just doesn't work. He explodes in a number of different directions all at the same time, and um, they're going around sort of looking at the footnotes. Uh, they don't see that this guy paints in broad strokes, you know, in, in a lot of directions at once. Um, it's the opposite of whack-a-mole. It's kind of propose-a-mole or... Uh, <laughs> 
he's he's got several proposals out there at once. Claude, I forgot you were there. I'm sorry. I am, I am <laughs> no. talking to you as well as other human beings out there. But you know what I mean. He's 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 making news and proposing policy changes on a number of fronts at the same time. Yeah, and and you know when he does that too, he doesn't necessarily uh, have a press conference for. It. Sometimes he just throws the idea out on Twitter. What's interesting is the is that the media's outrage on everything that he says or does, whether it's actually big or small, that everything's outrageous. Everything on a scale of one to ten is a fifteen, about <laughs> by, by their view. Um, and 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 it, and it kind of makes you think. You know, well, I wonder what is actually exaggerated, what's not. Uh, what's what's you know worrisome and what's not and i oftentimes ask you hey is this really a big deal or is this just you know more of the media stuff yeah to use uh, language and philosophy which probably won't clarify anything they don't focus <laughs> on the phenomena they focus mm-hmm. on the epiphenomena you know the little pieces mm-hmm. um so when they focus on the real phenomena my gosh the guy looks Gee, by liberal lights, almost enlightened sometimes. <laughs> Talks about, you know, not being afraid of the NRA and, you know, maybe we need to do this and that and maybe we need to have tariffs uh, and, you know, proposes and explores all, sort, all, all sorts of things. Well, yeah, you know, and it's your point about the NRA, you know, if if you were to listen to, to the media about Trump, wouldn't shouldn't there be more hysteria and outrage about about, whoa, wait a minute, is he coming? Is this a, a Republican president standing up against the NRA and telling other Republicans? Like, yeah. shouldn't that be what yeah. <laughs> what the hysteria is about and not, uh, you know, some of the other things that the, it's just weird the way that they make it. I mean, but uh, they can't comprehend him because right. he's too big. He's going in too many directions. They've never seen anyone like him. Usually in Washington, you get a president. He puts forward, you know, his first hundred days proposals. A couple of them come. They pass. They're boring. They move on to the next one, move on to the next one. Uh, you know, six, eight, nine, ten, twelve. 14 months of discussion about Obamacare. This guy does it in a week and then moves on to something else. Uh, look at the trade and tariffs thing. We've got everybody in an uproar, and he's already sort of said, well, you know, we'll take another look. I mean, if, if we get all the NAFTA agreements that we should and get rid of NAFTA as it is and make it good and repeal a lot of it, then, you know, we can withdraw some of this tariff uh, proposals. So uh, apart from the hysteria, he hears it and says, well, let's see. By the way, one correction, um, a lot of my favorite conservative media are saying, you know, all the objection to him on the tariffs is from the swamp and the establishment. Now, there's a fair amount of objection from the conservative side, too. National Review's objected. Of course, they objected to Trump early on. But even very close advisors, I'm thinking of people who've been on this podcast who, for example, helped them write the design, the tax plan. Uh, Larry Kudlow, Claude, uh, Steve mm-hmm. Moore, uh, Art Laffer, all people who've been on the podcast uh, are also uh, opposed to this uh, tariff proposal. But let's wait and see what the final shape of it is. Let's wait and see what the final shape of it is. Uh, let me say something about school safety. I think we're coming to some possible consensus on this. And um, good uh, if we do. Uh, what's the consensus? I think um, something on background checks and improving that system. There may be uh, a move here to uh, that may go through to raise the age, making exception for those who've served in the military. You know, if you serve in the military at 17 and you get out at 19, you know how to use a weapon. Um, sure, continue to be able to get a weapon. But um, that, that could happen. But I think the focus on school safety ought to be a focus on school safety and therefore harden the target, agree with the president. People uh, want to be armed if local decision is to arm a few people, a few teachers, administrators, coaches. Fine. This dovetails, coincides with a proposal I had years ago 
that uh, when I was Secretary of Education, that people who are retiring from the military ought to consider a career in the schools. A lot of these people are 50, 52, 53 years old. You know such people, Claude, around a lot of around D.C., right? Sure, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, I've heard some pushback on that. Um, but what about some guys who come out of the military and maybe there's some, you know, PTSD? Obviously, there would be testing and screening and things like that. Yeah, but they're not mad warriors either. Right, I mean, exactly. Like no, exactly. Ranged, you know, there are people who suffer from PTSD, but as you said, you're selective and you test and you review and, and so on. But meantime, they're very capable and they've been trained in weapons. And by the way, it would be good for our schools in general, our public schools, to have more people who've been in the military. Um, you could use some sort of military-type discipline in a number of our schools. And these are people who've worn the uniform and... Uh, Inject a little bit of patriotism by example wouldn't be the worst thing. Uh, wouldn't be the worst thing either. But as I was saying on Fox, this whole discussion about what to do is kind of obscured by the unfortunate fact that every bureaucratic institution or every institution that was supposed to be alert to this fell down on the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, the counselors and the uh, mental health people who were informed about this didn't take action. The FBI, you know, lost the messages or didn't pass them on. Uh, local police were not good. The guy stood outside while kids were getting slaughtered. I mean, uh, that kind of breakdown, you know, um, what does John Stuart Mill say? He says, the any standard will, will work ill if we suppose universal idiocy to be conjoined with it. Uh, any set of protections or proposals will work ill, work nothing, come to nothing, if we propose universal incompetence uh, in regard to them. And so those institutions need to be adjusted, fixed, reminded of their responsibilities and um, duties. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. Joel Farkas is director of the American Strategy Group. We've been having a conversation about, well, a lot of things, but really mostly about how elites are destroying America. I don't know whether they intend to uh, or not, but uh, they seem to be doing their best. I want to get to that topic uh, with Joel Farkas uh, in a couple of minutes. But first, I think it would be an affectation not to talk about an issue which uh, Joel uh, knows in real depth and about which there's a lot of talk, which is the president's discussion about laying some tariffs on aluminum and steel uh, coming into the United States. Uh, A lot of people in an uproar about this, Joel. Republicans, conservatives, the establishment, the swamp, as I heard this morning, and uh, some Democrats praising it and some union folks praising it. What about it? What do you think about this? Uh, it hasn't happened yet. It's kind of a, a head faint, by more than a head faint by the president, saying he intends to do this, been defended by uh, Peter Navarro and, uh, and others. Is this a good idea? Is this good policy? Is this consistent with the Donald Trump we know? Well, briefly, I would just like to describe what a tariff is. It's a bill. It's a charge. It's a cost. It's an assessment that a government imposes on another government for goods and services trading. Now, why would a government do that? Well, a government would do that because most likely they have trade agreements with those other with those other entities. And if those trade agreements are being violated, then you have to do something to deal with the violation. Now, governments impose unilaterally charges and fees and assessments on its own citizens. Those are called taxes. So 
A tariff is really just a form of a tax. It's just a different group of a different entity that you're working with. And that's all a tariff is. It has this, this nomenclature that once you've discussed, whenever you discuss trade or whenever you discuss tariffs, by definition, you have disrupted the world economy and everything will crash. So this has this nomenclature that if you bring up the word tariff, all these other cascading events will occur. That is absolutely untrue. Because we have tariffs already, for one thing, right? We have tariffs tariffs and taxes every single day of our life. There's always a circumstance where a government is imposing unilaterally, either on its citizens or another country, some sort of a fee or cost. Happens every day. Is it good? Is it bad? Well, you mentioned earlier, a lot of people oppose it. Almost everyone you discuss, whether uh, they're, they're liberal, progressive, or a conservative economist, they will say, unassailably, a tariff is bad. Well, if you ask that same person, is it bad that a country is violating your agreement? And if they are, what do you do about it? Typically, you'll get a long, extended answer, but the answer will ultimately end up with, well, whatever violations that are occurring, those violations cannot possibly be as bad as a tariff. That's a non-answer. Yeah. You never get back to what you do about it. Yeah. Well, we know what we know what Russia does about a country that they feel violates their agreement. They either act militarily or they shut off and cancel their contract. They just did that with Ukraine. They canceled an agreement to move gas through the Ukraine to Europe and to serve Ukraine with gas. Russia lost uh, a case in in Stockholm. Um, It started in 2014. They just recently lost it. Instead of paying the Ukraine, they said, we're not going to pay you and we're also going to shut off and cancel our contract. So we know what Russia does when someone does a, a trade agreement that they don't like. But for some reason, when President Trump mentions tariffs. He is disrupting the world, but there's never a good answer when somebody is violating an agreement. And quite frankly, he's the first elected official in my memory that is willing to stand up for and discuss and question and change violations. Uh, He's also fulfilling a campaign promise. I mean, he was perfectly transparent about this during the campaign. He said, you know, we're going to we're going to fix this. We'll impose penalties on countries that are not fair dealing. One of the one of the arguments uh, that's been made is, well, it's misdirected because uh, we get more most of our imported steel from uh, places like Canada and South Korea. And what he's really mad about is the trade imbalance with China. And that's a tiny percentage. So shouldn't you target this, scope this, rifle shot this more um, narrowly at, uh, at, a, at a real cheater, as he said throughout the campaign, back to the campaign reference, like China? No, uh, okay. he shouldn't. Okay. Uh, because our allies don't do that. Our allies are continually trying to protect their interests. These agreements, these free trade agreements we talk about, and by the way, we the one we talk about most is NAFTA. They're not free trade agreements. Each one of them, with all these countries that we that everyone deals with, talks in the title of free trade, and the rest of it is restrictions, reservations, reserved to themselves, restrict, and uh, uh, some sort of industry. Mexico reserved and re- reserved for itself its energy industry. Canada reserves for itself its agricultural industry. And with China, that is exactly um, uh, where President Trump has been focused on, but a lot of these other uh, allied countries of ours deal with China, too. The whole world, all of our our adversaries are dealing with China, and and all of our allies are dealing with China. So to 
figure out how to focus and target on one thing sounds really, really good and says, boy, that would be better. What they're saying is, I don't necessarily like what he's saying about tariffs, but if you're going to do it, do it my way. Uh The president is saying, I'm going to do it my way right now because none of you allies and adversaries are playing fairly with the United States. All right. It's an emboldened position. All right. You know, another thing here, I I just want to pick up on something you just said. I'm doing it this way right now. I don't know if you saw the president's tweet this morning about NAFTA in connection with tariffs. Did you happen to see that? I I didn't. I did not. Claude, pull that up. uh, It was uh, the president's tweets. And when you find it, just just interrupt us and and read it to us. But if you would, Claude, please. Uh, One of the president's three tweets. And he he talked about tariff stuff. He said, I'm going ahead with it. He said, by the way, we're negotiating NAFTA. And if if NAFTA NAFTA comes out right and, uh, you know, we conclude all these uh, uh, agreements that have been harmful uh, to U.S., uh, then uh, maybe I'll reconsider the tariffs. So it's more than a head faint that he's doing, oh. but it's not a final answer either. I mean, it's it's subject to other factors, and we don't know exactly how this is going to come out, this whole tariff talk, what it's going to lead to in terms of concrete policy yet. Would you grant me that? Absolutely. President Trump is playing seven-layer chess with the world. And I know it's, it's, it's fashionable to say he doesn't know what he's talking about or he's ignorant or he's whatever he is. But he knows how important all these other items, how they're interrelated and how important what they are. NAFTA, as you just mentioned that he tweeted about this morning, there's a solution to help NAFTA, and that is energy. It's the one industry that all three countries are substantially involved with and substantially interested in. And the fact that the president mentioned NAFTA this morning just confirms my comment that he knows significantly what he's doing with tariffs. Talking about tariffs, that's a tool. It's simply a tool to bring uh, parties to the table. Um, Canada has used the threat of tariffs on the United States. They've stated, we didn't intend to to threaten or impose them. We intended to achieve an objective. So the Canadians do that. Um, And the Canadians also know that there isn't, all these agreements aren't free trade. Justin Trudeau has said, uh, let's not pretend we're in a global free market when it comes to agriculture. You know, Canada is going to protect its industry, its agricultural industry. So when the president is focused on all these other items, NAFTA being one of them, extremely important, and he's playing and promoting the United States' interest and protecting the United States' interest very well. There's another dimension, too. I mean, there are a lot more dimensions, and we'll talk about this some other time. Let's see how this comes out. It's a very interesting point you make. Not only is he, at this point, undecided exactly what he'll do, but even at the point where you decide exactly what you'll do, you're still in a negotiating position, right? I mean, you're still. It, it's it's not like a final thing. You're always saying, all right, does this give me leverage to do something else? Exactly. Right. Uh, but when President Trump says, I'm negotiating, the world is, is going to have a catastrophic yeah, end. Yeah, of course. When somebody else says they are negotiating, somehow uh, that's okay. Even though he, uh, he's feeble and losing his mind and unstable, and, you know, <laughs> I, I'm quoting the press here, not my own <laughs> beliefs, but, you know, they got to decide, is this guy effective? and we take him seriously or do we not take him seriously? Uh, no. Nothing but man-man's tantrums, uh, but that's a separate point. One other thing I just want to bring up in this context, and I was reminded by our colleague uh, and friend Brian Kennedy, uh, and we are obviously having this conversation in the context of the American Strategy Group, 
Don Rumsfeld uh, thought that, you know, we need to have our own industry, especially in areas like steel and aluminum, for purposes of national defense. You don't want to be dependent on other countries, even friendly countries, when you're talking about something critical to the security of the United States like steel. I mentioned earlier Russia cutting off Ukraine with gas supplies. Well, Russia has cut off Europe several times over the last 20 years with gas supplies. Um, whenever Russia was trying to impose its will on some foreign policy issue. Yeah. Brian is one of the most foremost experts on this that you and I have met. He's absolutely right. When things are good, nobody looks at what could happen. But steel and aluminum are so... It's a great sentence, by the way. When things are good, people don't look at what could happen. That's almost cosmically true about everything. Go ahead. And steel and aluminum, I don't know how many steel manufacturers we have in the United States proper, but we as a country... It's finite. It's small. It's something like 10. It's very small. Very little. Very okay. little, very yep. few, very few. We as a country have to consider that. We have to consider the things that happen. And while we get criticized repeatedly that we are considering things for our own good in this country, every other nation around the world is doing the same darn thing. And I wish the American uh, uh, citizens would understand that. If I could just say one thing that happened within the last 30 days, United States has sanctions on Russia. Germany has just authorized Russia to build a gas pipeline under the Baltic Sea to serve Europe and Germany gas. They knew that this was flouting sanctions. They did it anyways. Now, we couldn't even build a Keystone Pipeline to help Canada. And now Russia is building another massive pipeline under the Baltic Sea to supply our ally, Germany, and the rest of Europe at, 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 against our sanctions. Yeah, they did go. it anyways. Yeah, so, President it. Trump, please continue to preserve and protect the steel and aluminum industry for the United States. It's okay. Others you do bet. it. You bet. Uh, Claude, uh, you got that tweet from the president uh, where he mentions NAFTA in connection with the tariffs. Uh, yeah, sure. I've got the tweet read, from the president. Read the whole tweet. I think it would be helpful to, to this to conclude our discussion. Sure. So uh, he says um, we have uh, we have large trade deficits with Mexico and Canada. NAFTA, which is under renegotiation right now, has uh, been a bad deal for the USA. Uh, massive relocation of companies and jobs. Tariffs on steel and aluminum will only come off uh, if new and fair NAFTA uh, agreement is signed. Makes the point, uh, Claude. Thank you, Joel. That we're that we're discussing, which is tariffs may come off. We get the right results from NAFTA. So it makes it perfectly clear this is a, a t- tentative, temporary perhaps, uh, is a better word, uh, negotiating position uh, as it uh, as it is when it's being considered and as it remains when it's applied. I mentioned that President Trump is extremely aware of all the complexities. I am more convinced after hearing that tweet that he uh, he knows more than any of his other uh, trading uh, negotiating partners around the world. Every time the president brings up NAFTA, every time he brings up tariffs, he has, by definition, disrupted the discussion, disrupted the economy. He understands that rather than listening to Mexico and Canada say, we're not doing whatever you're suggesting, President. Uh, uh, the negotiations are risky to citizens. It'll ruin the housing market. It'll ruin the automobile market. It'll ruin all these markets. And let's just keep it like we have had it. Well, he has now either stumbled upon or specifically found something that is bringing Mexico and Canada to the table. And he's 
suggesting here is a way to complete a renegotiation and a resetting of this agreement. And um, we'll see if he's successful, but it appears that he seems to be headed in the right direction. Um, That is why when we started earlier saying, should he target some of these things to China? No, because there's so many other uh, uh, complex uh, issues he's he's involved with, NAFTA being one of them. NAFTA's a big one. We have a lot of trade between Mexico and Canada. It's very important. And we might find that he, he resolves this pretty quickly. All right. With me All right. Then he, can, be, then he can go on to the next topic. That's what we're going to do. Uh, <laughs> uh, to be, continu- <laughs> to be continued both as a topic for us and uh, as an, a matter for discussion and decision by the president. But thank you. I think we we did need to uh, say something about it. And your your points are very well taken and help inform the discussion. They should, White House should have you out there. Um, talking about uh, talking about this, I want to pick up. I think I can segue using one word: sovereignty. You talked about sovereignty. Nations exercise their sovereignty. The president has often said, and others have said, you can't have a sovereign nation unless you have borders, uh, and you can't have a sovereign nation unless you, you know, have certain rules, principles that you abide by. Well, in the material that you sent me and that we were picking up on from our last discussion, Joel, there's a notion. Let me. I'm not trying to force a, a, a square peg into a round hole here. But that that some of the liberal elites that suggest to me, at least, you see if let's see if you can see where I'm going, that uh, cities, uh, urban areas, uh, large ones particularly, should have a kind of sovereignty over what their citizens do and what people newcomers do and immigrants to those cities do that uh, the, the 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 United States government itself may not have or should not have. That is, they uh, you see where I'm going. Yes. All right. But to put that into context in terms of our discussion, what uh, Los Angeles is up to uh, and feels perfectly in good conscience doing that it doesn't want the United States to do in another context. Your point is well taken. Um, well, first of all, there's two things. One is, when we begin the discussion of, of urban metropolitan areas in the United States, both the elected officials and the academic elites view those cities as the cluster of knowledge and innovation and anything good that we are now using around the world comes from those places. Therefore, it's really the only economic engine and economic driver of the United States or the world. Now, that's how, that's generally how they start with. Well, then what else do they say or do? Well, we're going to say who gets to and who doesn't get to live in our cities, basically. How do they do that? Uh, well, they can say, we're going to build these kinds of businesses. We're going to build this kind of housing. We're going to restrict and limit how many people come to our city. And we are darn well going to tell you federal government that regardless of your laws in terms of immigration and sanctuary cities, we are going to operate our city as uh, in the way we see fit, regardless, almost um, regardless of what the, the federal government does or says. It is really the, the, the mindset of a, of, of a city. And now it's interesting because some of the cities say we're going to allow any, anyone from anywhere to be in our city and, and protected by us, okay? Well, it's, the other thing that happens with cities is they also simultaneously say, we're going to put in restrictions and growth controls so that nobody comes in. Uh, the same city, L.A., you know, basically said what we've just been describing, also said uh, recently in, a, in an op-ed in the L.A. Times, those people moving from uh, the East Coast to New York in particular that come to our city, you got to uh, adhere to our culture. you got to provide something to our city that's important to our city. You're kind of coming in and parachuting in and dominating uh, what we have built and, and, and known to love in Los Angeles with your values. And that's just not right. 
I kind of find that amusing. That people how, how's that manifest itself? How, how, how is that said? They, they say, um, you know, you're coming in and buying a big expensive house, but we don't want you to come in here and impose your traffic and your your money and, uh, you know, put your kids in private school. We want you to support our public schools. We want you to pay for them. We want you to pay extra to, from your business to support the traffic you're creating. We want you to pay extra to support um, the impacts you have on air quality, on water quality. Let me interrupt. This is not, I'm just speaking, you know, I'm dumbing down here. This is not a memorandum that the city of Los Angeles sends to, to, to my son moving from New York to L.A. It's just, no. we're gonna, it's a, just the imposition. Most of prices, of taxes, and fines, and and uh, fees, and other things. Tariffs. Someone might call tariffs. Them tariffs. Okay, okay, tariffs. Back to our earlier discussion. <laughs> we never made a segue. What do you know? All right, fine. Uh, that that sends the message. But let me jump ahead because here's uh, my son's not moving to L.A. Not if I can help it. Not if he can help it either. But but. Um, if he does go, uh, he'll see all these fees and, and tax. Well, well, by the way, will it be worse than it is living in New York? Uh, they want to, the one thing LA wants to do to be like New York is to make their fees and charges the same, if not more. Okay, all right, so, all right fine. So yes, the answer is yeah. It'll be the same or worse. Yes. Um, yes. But that he's a bright and energetic young man. He brings brings intelligence and energy and drive to the city. He's not so welcome by the imposition of all these fees and taxes and so on. But people who aren't even citizens of this country, who may many of whom, some of whom, a chunk of whom won't, won't contribute anything, but will be a net drain on the economy of the state and the federal government, are welcome. Isn't that interesting? Explain that, Isn't that please. Interesting? Well, hypocrisy. Possibly. But it doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, if you were trying to build a great city, you'd want young, energetic, ambitious, intelligent people who, you know, speak English, know their way around, and have a lot of drive and can contribute. And, of course, you'd want some immigrants. But you wouldn't disfavor the American coming, who's talented, for the... uh immigrant coming in who may have talent native talent or not but many do not i mean you know it's not tom cotton's talent pool that's that's coming into southern california so why why it, why bill it is one of the most dumbfounding the way you've described it is correct as to what is happening the why i would have to then get into the mind of people who behave this way and i don't know why I don't know why they think that way. I, the progressive liberals have written about why do conservatives in middle America behave the way they behave? Why do they vote the way they vote? Well, it always starts with, you know what? They say it's because they're pursuing a better economic outcome, better jobs, better wages, and they're frustrated. And then they immediately step, these progressive uh, academics and elites, they immediately said step. Well, it can't just simply be economics. It has to be something more. It has to be that these same uh, red state voters are racist. They're xenophobic. They've been given a, a, a raw deal, and now they're lashing out. It's kind of the, the orthodoxy. Well, when a progressive says that about those red state voters, they're wrong. They're just inherently wrong, and they're offensive. So we're now back to your question. Why do progressive liberals in big cities do this? Why do they favor um, foreign immigrants over immigrants from another American state. I don't know why they do it. Okay. I do know they do it. Okay, L let me let me propose the following. You know, you and I are both members of the American Strategy Group. 
We are talking here under the auspices of the American Strategy Group. We talk all the time in AST about threats to the country. Is what we're talking about a threat to the country? A, seems to me it is. I mean, the picture... Absolutely. Picture painted Absolutely. by Victor, Victor Davis Hanson in the in the essay we read in part last week, where you know a homeless immigrant can leave all sorts of junk on the side of the road, and you know nothing ever happens. But if you're you know upper middle class and you know try to hook your computer up to a power line, you'll get fined from one way for you know for a thousand years. The effect of it is to it seems to me to destroy California. Uh, and therefore a significant part of the United States. That's the effect of it. Is it intended, or do they think they're saving California? I know they say they're saving, but do they somehow, you know, not even the devil himself knows the mind of man, and you know, that's what you just confessed, and I guess I, I agree. But uh, do they seek the undoing of California and the undoing of the United States? They don't think California as a state in the United States of America is necessary. Um, they don't think it's necessary. And furthermore, they don't think these other places within the United States and their critique of this behavior is relevant or necessary. I thought they loved California and, and wanted to glorify California, even separate California from the rest of the country. So as, uh, yes, contempt for South Dakota, North Dakota, but love of California. No, not by their actions, it seems to me. <laughs> if they thought if they thought California was so wonderful, I would, I'd like to take a poll of how many people in San Diego, L.A., Santa Barbara, San Francisco, have actually been to the Central Valley or to the Inland Empire or to every other place, which is the predominant area, land area of California. Uh, What they basically do, the only way that they could possibly have been in the Inland Empire, if you live in Los Angeles, is driving through it on their way to Palm Springs. Other than that, they have never been to the other places. Okay, so they don't know... Almost an excuse here. They don't know the effects they're having. They don't know the existential threat that they are creating to the state. They believe they know. They believe they're the smartest people. They're the richest, and they're the smartest. They, in many cases, they've made more than a billion dollars. It's maybe back to what Socrates referred to, the fallacy of the artisans. They're very good at one thing, and therefore they think they know something about all yeah. things. Yeah. They don't. Yeah. They, they don't know. Bill Gates, we talked about him on, on a few occasions, a brilliant, successful, just figured out recently by reading a book called Evicted that there is a connection between poverty and homelessness. How could that be that he could just figure that out recently? Now, I don't know what they know uh, or what they think they know, as I, did, as I described earlier. And you don't know what, what they, they intend. Yes, I don't know what they intend, but I will say without equivocation, their actions and and what they say and what they write about and what they are, are interested in and what they support is based on the fact that the other places in the United States, the smaller areas, the smaller towns, the rural areas, are unnecessary, and that the federal government, in terms of imposing any kind of any kind of policy that they don't agree with on California or other states like that, it's unnecessary, and it's not even, in their nomenclature, not even valid and legal. They believe what they believe, and that's all. The basic premise of someone who is an intelligent academic, I think there was a poll um, several years ago. They polled um, academic professors, and it came out that more than 94% of them believe they were doing above-average work. Well, (laughs) I don't believe 94% of any group is doing above-average work. 
Yeah, probably but that, not. That just suggests that they all of them believe what they that they're, that they're doing. They're doing really good work. Which right. an extension of that is the others who criticize them are wrong, and that's none of that. That's not true. All right, let's talk about one person who criticized them and opposed them, and let's make this the last large question of the day. What is it that Donald Trump is doing to resist this? He's part of a resistance, right? And he's part of a resistance yes, to this. Yes, what is. is it that he's doing, proposing what policies, what positions is he taking that are a threat to this uh, liberal elite establishment way of doing things? In the context, as, as specific as you can make it in the context of the cities, you yes. know, immigration, et cetera, the context that we have been using for the last two discussions. President Trump is advocating America's sovereign position in every topic, militarily, foreign policy related, economic. He is advocating for America. And when he does that, when he takes a position to advocate for our interests, he is criticized by everyone, almost universally, Republican and Democrat, that he's disrupting the state of things in the world. He's disrupting the economy. He's disrupting the balance of foreign power. He's disrupting alliances. And um, domestically? That's what he's and, doing. and domestically? And domestically, he is going straight towards. He's not listening to the... He's, he is ignoring the urban elite uh, narrative that the rest of the, the country is not relevant. The knowledge and the creativity and the innovation of cities is the be-all and end-all. And he is absolutely saying, no, you're wrong. He's accused of protecting industry. No, he is promoting industry. Okay. They both start with a P, but he's promoting, not protecting. And he's starting with steel and aluminum. Okay. He's working with the auto industry and every other industry that's a manufacturing-based product. Joe, um, we talked about immigrants from America to other parts of America, from New York or Nashville, even to L.A., and what they face when they get there. And we talked about rules and fines and, and, and other things as a way to discourage them. I was just thinking one of the other things is regulations. And this is where Trump really is the antichrist to these liberal elites. His policy at the federal government level for every new regulation yes. we put in yes. place, you got to get rid of two or three uh, old regulations. So regulation in L.A. or New York is a big weapon, right, is a big part of the discouragement to people coming, yes. um, coming in. Yes, and there's a lot of regulations, but the foremost regulation is imposed on American uh, citizens by the Clean Water Act. And the first thing that President Trump did when he came into office is had the EPA review what President Obama had done about two years ago, which was to change the rules and regulations on the interpretation of the Clean Water Act. And he the, almost the first thing President Trump did in office was what he, he said that executive order is going to be reviewed and changed by him. What that does, why that sounds so ethereal, but almost anything that anybody, any city would want to do in the United States would have to deal with. If, if someone's going to move there, they have to have water to drink. If someone's going to build on something, mm -hmm. they have to be mm -hmm. able to build on land. Well, the, what President Obama did when he was in office, he basically said the Clean Water Act talks about navigable territorial waters of the United States. Now, what he then said is almost everything, even even a dry stream bed that's a, that you can step over when you're hiking, has some nexus or connection to every navigable or territorial water.
water of the United States. He basically said, that's how you got to look at it now. Uh, President Trump looked at that and said, that's not going to happen while I'm president, and I'm going to change it. And that was the first thing he did. And that just is another example of how intuitive he is in terms of how to level the playing field between the big urban areas and the rest of the country. Great. Great example. Great to, great to end on. We need to end on there. We will continue this discussion. Promise? I promise. Thank you so much for, for having this with me. I love, uh, I love talking to you about great. this. Well, that was Joel Farkas, director of the American Strategy Group. As you know, I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group, and to learn more about the important work they're doing, go to amstrategy.org or facebook.com slash amstrategy. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Let's switch directions, folks, and let's welcome to the show Terry Pell, president of the Center for Individual Rights. Um, interesting cases all the time for Terry. Uh, he's been involved in some landmark and historic uh, cases and decisions, making the arguments, preparing the briefs. We've got one before the court now, Terry, which could make a big difference to American public education and, uh, and other things. Is that right? Uh, that's right. Uh, the court is, again, taking up the issue of whether the state can compel public employees uh, to uh, support their union, even if, when they completely disagree with what the union is uh, supposedly doing on their behalf. Tell us what the, ca- what the name of the case is. Give us a little background on it, please. Sure. The case is, was brought by Mark Genus, who is a uh, state uh, employee in Illinois. He's a child support specialist. And uh, he realized that um, uh, his union uh, was negotiating for higher and higher salaries and better and better pension benefits, and that the, due to the union's efforts, the state was basically on the verge of bankruptcy. So he decided uh, he didn't want to support his union's efforts anymore, and he uh, withdrew from the union. But under Illinois law, he still has to pay roughly 60 to 70 percent of the dues each year, uh, which the union uh, turns around and uses to continue to negotiate for higher and higher salaries. So this is a situation where an individual fundamentally disagrees with the approach of the union, does not want the union speaking out on his behalf and negotiating on his behalf, and yet the state forces him uh, to fund the union's efforts. Uh, so that's what's that's the issue before the court, whether the state can force individuals to support uh, a union, uh, which uh, is political in every aspect of its negotiating, um, uh, when that individual disagrees with the union. We think the First Amendment uh, prohibits the state from forcing individuals to support speech uh, with which they fundamentally disagree. And uh, just a couple simple connection connected points here for the uninitiated. Um, uh, the state forces because it's a state law that you have to pay into the union if you're if they're representing you. Uh, that's right. You can resign from the union, uh, but then state law uh, requires you to uh, pay the full dues and apply to the union each year for a refund of that portion of the dues uh, that the union says are being used for, you know, explicit overt political activities. That means due to this state law, you're on the hook for 70% of the dues each year. 
which the union says are used just for negotiating purposes. Uh, but as Mark Janus pointed out, this negotiating that the union does is every bit as political as the overt political activities. And at any rate, he doesn't agree with what the union is trying to negotiate on his behalf. Uh, so what the court is going to take up is whether these types of state laws are constitutional or not, whether the state can compel you to support a private organization uh, that you just fundamentally disagree with. What's the constitutional issue here? What part of the Constitution is he saying uh, is being violated, Mr. Janus, by this compulsory union dues? Well, the First Amendment, uh, uh, you know, as you know, protects the right of each individual to say whatever he wants. The state cannot regulate your speech based on its point of view. Well, another part of the First Amendment is uh, has to do with what's called compelled speech. Uh, just as the state may not uh, prevent you from speaking, neither may the state force you or compel you to speak. It's up to each individual to decide when and where and how to speak, what issues to jump into, what issues to support, and what issues to just stay out of. Uh, and that's part of the individual's uh, you know, right under the First Amendment to make those decisions uh, himself and to not have the state jump in and say, no, 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 you have to, as a condition of employment, you have to support this organization, which is uh, taking this point of view uh, in these uh, very political disputes. But just to be simple-minded for a minute, um, the union isn't compelling and the state isn't compelling Mr. Janus to speak. Right. No, that's or, right. Or is it is it is the argument that money talks? That's exactly right. Money is speech. When we speak, we speak through organizations, and we pay money to those organizations uh, to promote the speech that we agree with. And here, Mr. Janus is being asked to spend six or seven hundred dollars a year uh, out of his salary to support an organization that's purportedly speaking on his behalf except that he doesn't agree with the speech uh, that the union is uh, making on his behalf. So, yes, you're exactly right. In this case, uh, what we're talking about is money, and we're talking about money uh, being used to buy speech uh, that, uh, you know, is designed to influence, uh, you know, public debates and public issues. All right, I see. Um, let's go backwards a little bit and then move forward. Uh, this uh, case is a, a descendant, right, a direct descendant of the earlier case. Was it called Friedrichs? That's right. And that was a case brought in California? Yeah, that was our case. We were representing... Your uh, case, Center for Individual Rights. That's right. right. Uh, we represented a group of California school teachers who were challenging precisely this issue in California. That got to the Supreme Court. It looked like we had five votes. Uh, the oral argument suggested that we were, you know, that the court was prepared to strike down uh, these state laws. But then a month after oral argument, Justice Scalia uh, passed away. And as a result, the court tied 4-4. And that meant that uh, all of these laws stayed in place. So uh, another case, you know, got going right after Friedrichs, and that's the, that's the Janus case, and that's the case before the court now. Uh, it raises the same fundamental issue that uh, we were raising in Friedrichs, namely um, whether these state laws violate the free speech rights uh, of public employees. And the difference now, at least one difference, 
I guess, I guess pretty much identical in the main issues, but one difference is that the Supreme Court now has nine, and the ninth is uh, Judge Gorsuch, Neil Gorsuch, Justice Gorsuch. Uh, that's right. And um, so I think most people expect that Judge Gorsuch is going to vote with the majority and that there'll be a five, this will be a 5-4 decision, although uh, obviously it's too soon to tell, and we won't know until June exactly uh, how the justices are going to vote. As a friend of mine says, the most powerful man in the world, Anthony Kennedy, can always change his mind, right? That's right. Or even John Roberts has been known to change his mind position on some things. No, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, we've been litigating before the Supreme Court for the last 20 years, and you cannot take the vote of any justice for granted. You have to fight for each one, and it's somewhat of a a myth to think that, um, you know, there are these voting blocks on the Supreme Court. Every one of these justices uh, thinks this through on their own and tries to tie it together with their own prior decisions. And so you really have to. You really don't know until the decision comes down who's going to vote which way. I mean, you can't count on the liberals. I mean, I know we can't count on all the so-called conservatives because they grow in office. They grow and get too big for their robes. But uh, but the liberals pretty much vote as a block, don't they? Yes, no, I think you're right about that. Although, you know, even, uh, you know, it's, 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 um, Again, it even I mean, I would agree with you. The liberals tend to vote as a block more often than the conservatives do. But even the liberals break off uh, and vote with the conservative, you know, routinely. So it's it's just um, it's just not that easy to know in advance how particular justices are going to vote. I mean, we you, we know in a particular case that certain justices are likely to vote our way, but there are always a couple that are up for grabs that you just don't know about. Sometimes it's on the right, sometimes it's on the left. So. So, uh, in my view, that's a good thing, and it shows, sure. you know, sure. a healthy institution. But it yeah. does make it uh, difficult to litigate before them. You just can't take anything for granted. I remember an essay I read when I was studying philosophy. You have a Ph.D. in philosophy, too. And it was, I, think, I can't remember who wrote it, but uh, I think it was a guy named Aiken. But it said the difference between the ideologue and the philosopher is the philosopher is willing to take a second look. Uh, and the ideologue, oh, you could always predict where he's going to come out. He's going to come out with the party line. So I think no, I think you're exactly right about that. And I think the justices do take a second look. And I think every case that comes before them, they look at the facts very closely. And uh, you know, you could see that in the oral argument last week. Even the justices that you know voted with us in Friedrichs uh, were asking serious questions about this new case that had come before them. It raises the same issue, but it's a different set of facts, and it's two years later, and things are changed, and uh, they wanted to dig into it again. And I think I think that is a good thing. Yeah. All right. Uh, you talked about 20 years you've been at it. Um, I've been at education reform about 50 years now, uh, <laughs> yeah. close to it. Um, and uh, let's talk about the future. What are the major implications should this case be decided for Mr. Janus uh, by a 5-4 majority with uh, Justice Gorsuch? Um, and if the, his argument is accepted, that can't be compelled to pay these dues. What what happens in terms of money? What happens in terms of policy? What happens? What could happen in terms of uh, American education? Well, this was really the big dispute uh, last week during oral argument. Uh, the unions argue that if we win, it's the end of unions. I mean, that basically, uh, you know, no sensible person would continue to pay several hundred dollars a year in dues uh, if they can just free ride and let somebody else pay the dues and the union will 
you know, continue to negotiate on their behalf essentially for free. Uh, we disagree with that. I mean, essentially what we're doing here is putting the decision of whether unions are a good or bad thing in, in the hands of frontline employees to decide for themselves. Many employees, many teachers uh, support their union, and they're going to continue to pay dues. Uh, other individuals, I mean, who are, I think we're really fighting for here are a minority of public employees who don't ag- agree with their union. And under the First Amendment, you know, we protect the right of minorities to control their own speech, to decide for themselves, and to walk away from organizations that they disagree with. So uh, at the just right out of the gate, uh, we're probably talking about 10% of the public employees who might think about leaving their union. Now, um, well, let me interrupt you. Why only 10%? Well, it's a guess. Um, in California right now, 10% of the teachers, for example, opt out of paying the political portion of the California Teachers Association's dues. So that's kind of a good starting point for thinking who might leave the union altogether. These are people who disagree with the politics of the union. Um, so that's, that's what we should be thinking about is a minority of union members leaving. But the truth of the matter is we don't know whether it's going to be right. a big number or right. a small number because it depends on what the unions do. Uh, the unions are self-interested private organizations that are now going to be competing for members. And some unions will sit back. What do you mean do- private? I thought they were public. No, no, but they're, they represent public employees, but they are a private organization. They're okay. independent of the government. Okay. So, so they're going to be competing for members, these private organizations, just like the American Bar Association competes for members and the American Medical Association. Um, some unions will do a good job competing for members and competing for dues, and they'll continue to thrive. I mean, we have roughly 26 states, right-to-work states now, where the unions have to compete for members, and the unions do pretty well. On average, union membership is growing in the right-to-work states, and partly that reflects the unions have to get out there and compete, and when they do, uh, you know, employees respond to that. Um, so, uh, as I said, we don't really know what's going to happen down the road here because we're moving the decision from uh, state legislatures into the hands of the actual employees on the front lines who are best able to decide, you know, whether the union supports them. If the unions compete for those members, they'll, they'll do pretty well. If they don't, they're going to have problems, and uh, there's no way to generalize about this in advance. All right, let's make the distinction between truth and right opinion, as, as Plato would have it, talking one philosopher here to another. Uh, one hears on the street, the conservative street, this is a crucial and critical decision. This will change the shape of public education because it will weaken unions, therefore it will weaken union power and strangle hold over American public education. I know there are public employees who are not teachers, but I'm, I'm focusing on that right. part of it. Um, but if you only are going to lose 10%, that's not going to dr- dramatically uh, weaken uh, the public unions. Well, look, there are different views about this. We, The Center for Individual Rights is not an anti-union organization. We're not in this fight to end unions or destroy unions. In our view, unions are part of the landscape, uh, and they're going to be continue to be part of the landscape. Um, the, the trick here is to try to make unions accountable to their actual real members, their dues-paying okay. members. Okay. If we win, they will be accountable to their members because there's no state law that requires no longer any state law that would require uh, individuals to support the union. But the fact of the matter is a lot of public employees do support their union, 
And um, so we're, we're not, at least the Center for Individual Rights, is not out to end unions or interfere with the right of, people, of individual public employees who want to support their union. That's fine as far as we're concerned, just so long as other individuals have the right to not support the union. But I I grant you there are other groups here who are politically partisan in their nature who are really out to just end unions across the board. Um, That is not the issue before the Supreme Court, and at least we at the Center for Individual Rights have been careful in presenting this issue to the court to make it clear that we're talking about an individual right here and to load that individual right right up with this kind of political baggage is, uh, I think, in some sense misleading. Yeah, and you you can't, uh, won't, and can't take a political position, right, um, at your organization. Well, we we could, but I mean, the First Amendment is you know designed to protect everybody's right, not just the right of the people that we happen to agree with. Right. Okay. All right. But uh, nevertheless, there are arguments that uh, you know I hear them all the time. I've heard them forty, fifty years. Audiences can't we get rid of the unions? They're killing public education. Almost every reform that uh, is proposed, constructive reform, uh, is opposed and often killed by the unions. And the initial point you uh, raised, uh, the Janus uh, argument, I mean, uh, as the unions go out after this money, the the, the bu- budgets get busted, pensions are beyond belief in places like California and Illinois. I mean, there are, there are such arguments that, that are, are not nonsensical, right? I mean, there are formidable arguments about um, the, um, the power of unions and the power of the unions to do not not good but harm. No, I, look, I agree with you. I think the reason that this free speech argument got off the ground and got traction with the Supreme Court is uh, that everybody realizes that the unions are out of control. They're, they come down on one side, and effectively they're you know, an arm of the Democratic Party. Yeah, everybody yeah. understands that. Justice yeah. Kennedy from the bench you know, made that observation directly uh, last week. So I, I would view this as kind of a a major shot across the bow of unions that um, they are now going to be accountable to their members. And, and just speaking about California for a second, 30 percent of the members of the California Teachers Association are Republican, yet uh, the California Teachers Association almost never endorses a Republican candidate for anything. Yeah. So there is, the unions are out of political alignment with 30 percent of their members. And that's what's at stake here. If they continue down that road, they will lose the 30 percent of their members. And that will be a major hit on their revenue. I got you. All right. All right. So uh, when do we see this decision, Terry, in the summer? Uh, It'll be probably one of the last decisions of the term. So by June 30th. And it is it is whether it's 10 percent or not, uh, who would who would uh, change their views and 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 say they wouldn't pay the dues. Uh, This is an important and major and a consequential decision. I think that's right, yes. I mean, I think it just changes the landscape, and I don't think anybody has a good handle on how that's going to play out, but it will put the unions on defense and give ordinary teachers uh, some leverage over what the union is doing with their money, and that's a good thing. Okay. Uh, Terry Pell, thank you very much. Uh, President of the Center for Individual Rights, important case. We needed to hear more about it, and now uh, we've all been enlightened, and we thank you. Thank you, Bill. All right, that was Terry Pell, President of the Center for Individual Rights. That just about wraps it up for this week. 
catch up on previous episodes of this show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett, and you can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up again next week. We'll be right back.